May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Most of us don't think of death as being a particularly welcome thing. Most of us take it for granted that it's right for people to fight like hell against death. Someone is diagnosed with terminal cancer and they begin to wage what is usually characterized as a courageous battle. And fair enough. In the Christian tradition, death is not downplayed, romanticized, or trivialized. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul goes so far as to call death the last or the final or maybe even the ultimate enemy. Death marks a massive separation between people who love and care for one another, between the known and the unknown, and between body and spirit, which is, after all, the only experience of life that we have. Whatever else death might be, it means that the union of body and spirit is severed, and that the physical body that is so recognizably me stops functioning and begins to decay. It's an almost appallingly jarring thing to confront that truth. And so we fight, and we resist, and sometimes even deny death. Yet here in tonight's reading from 2 Corinthians, the very same Paul who called death an enemy sounds like he's longing to die. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, he writes in his letter to his young Corinthian church. Away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, Sometimes you do hear people say things like that, particularly at the end of a very long life. You might know the song that Steve Bell recorded on his Sons and Daughters album, She's Getting Ready for Glory. It's a song written by Carolyn Ahrens for her own grandmother. And the song paints a, a kind of a, a very poignant picture of, a, of an elderly woman getting herself ready to die. And it goes... She knows all the verses to how great thou art, and the Spirit doth magnify often. She's going to keep learning the scriptures by heart till the day that she's laid in her coffin. She wants to be sure when the angels come take her, she's got some greetings for meeting her maker. And both Carolyn's version, but also in Steve's hands, as he pictures his own grandmother, there is that, that kind of... The, the course is done, and now it is time to let go and be at home with the Lord. But Paul, Paul isn't an elderly man whose life has run its course. And still, he seems to be longing to die. While he writes elsewhere about his struggles and about the sufferings he's endured, Neither is he in a place where he's sinking under the weight of some pain or some loss or, or, or a heavy depression. That's a reality for some people, of course, that life is lived under such a weight that death can seem a desired relief. But that's not where Paul's longing comes from. 
Simply stated, Paul longs to be held eternally in the presence of God. And he writes of a day when he'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But he's not afraid. He's not afraid because he's persuaded that his life and his death are utterly safe in the death of Christ. And in what I take as an almost comical perspective, he even suggests that his longing to die is a bit of madness. I don't know if you heard that when Marie read the lesson, but he says, For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. If we're beside ourselves, he's talking about, or he's ready to admit that the more conventionally sane perspective is the one that would keep him moving forward in his life and his work and his mission, in his passion to persuade others and to keep proclaiming this gospel that places a claim on the lives and deaths of any and all. But he's also quite willing to admit that nutty as it sounds, beside himself, he's actually willing to trade away the rest of his life and just die in the peace of Christ. Then it's fascinating to see where he goes next after he expresses that stuff. Paul, of course, never intended to write polished theological treatises. Even less did he set, to, set out to write what would come to be embraced as authoritative scripture. He'd probably be shocked that we're still reading his letters and then saying at the end of them, the word of the Lord... He didn't know that's what he was doing. He's writing a letter to a church, to a church community that he knows well. And he's letting his thoughts flow forward in a, in a truly organic kind of a way. And so having drawn these contrasts between being at home on the one hand and away from the body in, on the other, between being beside himself or a bit kind of off his rocker on the one hand, and in his right mind on the other, he begins then to push against those contrasts and to try to pull things together. Death and life, in fact, are brought together. As he writes that because Christ died for all, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. And this then carries him on to make one of the most stirring statements in the whole of the Christian scriptures. It's what we ended the, the reading with tonight. So, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, Paul proclaims, which really means that He's beginning to kind of realize that he doesn't have to wait until his death to be recreated, to be made wholly new, to be at home in Christ, in fact. Everything old has passed away, he almost sings. See, behold, everything has become new. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit was beginning to get a little impatient with Paul and nudged him hard in the ribs kind of reminding him of the truth that the reign of God is already on and that we're, all, we're always and ever in the presence of Christ in whom we live and move and have our being. Eternal life begins in the here and now. 
He doesn't have to die and go there. He's in it already. That's his proclamation, ultimately. Have you ever noticed, paid attention to the words that I proclaim after we've spent that time in silence together, offering our brokenness and our sin into the presence of God, offering it over, you know, the truth of our lives? I respond to that by saying, Almighty God, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in eternal life. Not take you there, not kind of somehow, you know, keep me good enough that I'll get bridged there, not carry you off someday when you die to eternal life, but keep you, keep all of us in eternal life that's on now and already. That's what Paul is on to here when he dares to say that everything has become new. And while the lectionary cycle actually had us end the reading there, it's not insignificant to get a sense of where Paul goes next with his proclamation. All this is from God, he writes, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. He'd been writing about contrasts and even tensions between life and death. Yet now he discovers he has to write about reconciliation. Reconciliation between what? Frankly, between all things. Foremost in Paul's mind is the reconciliation of God and the world. That's his core proclamation. That's the all things becoming new. But because Paul is also writing this originally to a very particular church community, and one that has experienced some really severe divisions and infights and separations, he's also got to be thinking about reconciliation within that community. And for all that he wrote about being wanting to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, I think he's also pointing to a reconciliation of body and soul, body and spirit. Paul is far too deeply rooted in a Jewish view of life to buy into a vision of eternity that has us float off to some eternal, ethereal heaven as pure spirit, to kind of, you know, sit on clouds and play harps. Thank goodness Paul is too Jewish and earthy for that. I don't want to do that for all eternity, thank you very much. Paul, in his earlier letter to that same Corinthian church, he pushed hard, not for a theology of an immortal spirit floating away from the body, but, but instead for a resurrection view of life. And one that affirms not simply the resurrection of Christ, but also one that envisions our future as being a resurrection future. He affirms a belief not in an immortal soul that has shed a limiting, somehow devalued, debased body, but instead one that sees our being raised in a transformed and renewed body free from its mortality, yet somehow still recognizably me 
and you. I mean, that's the picture that in the fullness of time, we will not be sitting on clouds, playing harps, sort of ghosty kind of things, but recognizably who we are. And that this body matters, substance, creation matters. It's a new creation. But you know, powerful as Paul's proclamation is regarding the new creation and the passing away of everything old, he's still aware that there's still a ways to go. Still a ways to go to see the final redemption and reconciliation of all things. In the very next chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, he's back writing about the reality of his own struggles and his own suffering, deeply aware that God is not finished with him yet. And of course, God is not finished with any of us yet. But the seedbed has been well worked and the seed deeply planted. And so the new creation is among us indeed. What is it that we heard in tonight's gospel reading? Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable will we use for it? It's like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom has, in fact, been planted. That's the cross and resurrection. And our struggles and our sufferings and our unmet longings aside, we have to learn to live that reality now, in the kingdom, under the reign, already a new creation. Because we are a new creation, though it can be hard to see sometimes, particularly hard to believe that everything has been made new when we know how difficult things can be for us, for those we love. But everything has been made new. So live into that reality and be that truth now for each other in the world, reconciled in the unity of Christ. We are a new creation. Amen.